Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss robots in the working class, the pain of losing elections, and what Chicago needs from its next mayor. All this, plus size matters, are we cool yet, and the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for March 8, 2019. Jerry Mead Lucero spoke to economist Jack Rasmus about UBI, or Universal Basic Income, and its effect on the working class. Rasmus discussed how robots and software will impact workers, why UBI as considered by corporate interests isn't a good deal, and where the money workers pay in taxes really goes. Labor Express with Lucero airs every Sunday at 8 p.m. On tonight's program, I'm interviewing economist Dr. Jack Rasmus about the concept of UBI, or universal basic income. It was recently announced that there will be a universal basic income pilot program here in Chicago. Dr. Rasmus was highly skeptical about how UBI, as it's being proposed by corporate CEOs and neoliberal governments, will affect the lives of working class people. Well, uh, that's a a very important demand, uh, but really what it says is uh, let's uh, share the jobs that exist amongst ourselves without a reduction in in pay. Okay. Uh, The bigger problem is they're just not creating, they, meaning capitalists, just aren't creating sufficient amount of new good paying jobs. They're just not doing it. You know, if you look at the U.S. and the other advanced economies, uh, real asset investment, investment, in other words, uh, investing in, in plants and, and structures and so forth, uh, equipment, etc., uh, has been slowing down uh, throughout the the 21st century, at least the last 10, 12 years, uh, and productivity is collapsing as a result, and uh, it makes it harder to give wage increases when productivity collapses, but productivity is collapsing because the investment is, is stagnating, and investment is stagnating because all the money being created is going, not all, but a lot of it is going into financial markets, you see. Mm-hmm. See, where there's this shift to financial asset investing in the U.S. and globally, and the rich are plowing their money back into these stock markets and these bond markets and derivative markets and foreign exchange markets because they're making even greater profits there, you see. And instead of, uh, you know, putting it into real investment that creates jobs for real people, now, of course, you'd have to have unions stronger to say, okay, you're creating jobs, now uh, we want a piece of that action, right? Uh, but uh, w- without the job, real job creation, um, it doesn't matter if you're splitting the jobs, you know, by reducing your hours. I mean, that that's a partial temporary solution and a good one, uh, but the real solution is, why why don't we have more real good-paying jobs being created? Why are we creating all these part-time uh, temp, low-pay service jobs, gig jobs, contingent jobs? Mm-hmm. You see, the whole labor market has, has been restructured in the last several decades under neoliberalism, uh, and that restructuring is uh, a shift towards part-time temp contract, now gig, and so forth, employment, and shifting of benefits from paid by employers onto the back of, of, uh, of the workers themselves. Uh, even Obama's ACA is an example of privatization, you see. Yeah. Instead of having the employers or the, or the system, Medicare for All would have said, okay, the system has to provide insurance for people, uh, you know, basic health care. Um, but instead of doing that, they say, well, everybody go out and buy your own contract, your own insurance. That's that's privatization. Right. You know, that's part of neoliberalism. Uh, and, and one of the essences of, ne- of neoliberalism is privatization and austerity. Uh, instead of doing that, 
you know, uh, uh, solving those problems. It's, uh, uh, you know, go go the go by your own on on the marketplace thing. Uh, and and they would find some way. They meaning if if this became policy of those parties in in power today, you know, just about everywhere. Uh, if if uh, UBI was theirs, they would find a way to socialize the cost. You see, mm-hmm. socialize the cost, make uh, spread the cost from one sector of the working class to pay for this on another sector. But the rich would never pay for it. You know. Now, some of the left proposals behind UBI do propose things like either a tax on robots or a tax on financial transactions as a way to try to pay for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course. Uh, there's a lot of complications there. For instance, the, the tax on financial transactions is something that's been proposed time and again for almost every possible social ill of capitalism lately. You know, it's uh, it proposed as a way to uh, try to rebalance uh, even the global economy between, between the north and south and so on by, you know, uh, providing uh, resources to, to, to help uh, spur oh, development. I've, I've, I've proposed the financial transactions tax for several years now. Right. And uh, uh, very minimally, you could you could raise uh, three $400 billion a year year uh, simply by uh, a one-tenth of one percent tax on uh, on uh, stock trades and a one uh, percent on all bond trades and then uh, uh, taxing foreign exchange transactions minimally minimally uh, you could raise hundreds of billions of dollars but I'll tell you uh, financial transaction tax could pay for UBI uh, but you'd need a revolution before they agree to that <laughs> You know, right, right. There's, there's no way. There's no way these these people are, are going to agree. These people, meaning, uh, uh, you know, the Goldman Sachs and the people running the Treasury now from Goldman Sachs and in the, uh, you know, the White House there, Gary Cohn, he's from Goldman Sachs. Uh, Dudley, the head of the New York Federal Reserve, he's from Goldman Sachs. Uh, Goldman Sachs and and the big banks are running foreign uh, economic policy in this country. People don't realize it. Who who drafted this five trillion dollar uh, investor uh, business tax cut bill, huh? Well, it was four people. It was Gary Cohn in the White House, uh, CEO, ex-CEO, Goldman Sachs, and Steve Mnuchin in the Treasury, Goldman Sachs, and three of their staffers. Five people drafted $5 trillion tax cuts. Yeah, for, for the rich, right? right? right. And, and their corporations and their shareholders. You know, after they've been getting a trillion dollars a year for the last six years, now they're going to get $1.3 trillion. Um, you know, that tells you who's running the show and, and how blatantly they are now uh, proposing policies in their personal interest. Uh, they don't really care. Uh, so, you know, thinking that you're going to pass a financial transaction tax with these people running the show is... Um, you know, you're really deluding yourself. Right. Which goes back to that uh, uh, question of whether uh, a UBI would simply be a way to, uh, you know, it further empowers the working class and make the uh, the uh, casualization of uh, employment even more likely because they can basically try to use the UBI to uh, prevent people from going into complete crisis or whether it would actually be something that would allow people to actually change the balance of power in the workplace by giving people the option of not accepting jobs. It's it's all in the question about how, you know, wh- how much money are we talking about and who really decides, you know, h- how this is going to be done. Well, you know, the argument there is that uh, if you give people uh, an alternative with, with UBI, um, uh, uh, the supply of labor will will not be sufficient enough, uh, and employers um, will will have to raise their wages as a as a response. Right? Uh, well, I don't believe that either. Right? Uh, I mean, uh, you need a vehicle to force the wage increases. 
you need unions to force the wage increases yeah. or or businesses just won't raise wages i mean look at the, even in japan you know uh, prime minister abe over there he's been uh, pleading with the corporations please we're giving you all this free subsidized uh, uh, QE and other other funding here. Please now raise wages because you you got to raise wages if we're going to have consumption and growth. They won't do it, and they won't do it here either. Right, right. You, we, you mentioned we mentioned the tax on financial transactions, which of course you proposed and others proposed uh, because it also, of course. Um, it has the potential, too, of reducing the volatility that we see uh, in speculation in markets. What do you think about this idea of a tax on robots, and how would that actually work? Well, what you're talking about is, is a tax on, uh, on real asset invest, investment, right? Because, uh, you, you know, that, that's capital equipment. Robots are capital equipment. Well, actually, they're going to be our software more, more than hardware. People don't realize that. That's what AI is about, is software robots. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, uh, you know, you, you're, you're taxing capital, uh, capital expenditures or investment. And, uh, you know, the business people are going to come back and say, well, you know, you're raising our cost of investment, so we're not going to invest as much. Uh, of course, that's the argument they'll make. Uh, it, it really won't make that much matter, uh, you know, to their cost of investment, because, you know, profits drive investment cost. It's not the, uh, the cost of money or the cost of uh, replacing the capital. Uh, it's, it's the expectation of profitability that drives it all. That, that's why this, we have the shift to financial investing, because the expectation is so, so, so much larger, uh, and it's so, it comes so much more quickly, and uh, investors can move in and out of these financial asset markets more easily uh, than you can if uh, you engage in a long-term investment with hiring people and getting resources and getting suppliers and, and waiting for four or five years to get a return, you know. Uh, I mean, that's 20th century capital. This is 21st. Uh, financialization is, is really what it's all about today. Uh, and and that's where they that, that's why we have so much income inequality. Mario Smith and Jamie Trecker spoke to Gabriel Piamonte, a losing candidate for alderman in the Fifth Ward. Piamonte spoke about what happens the day after, the financial costs Chicago candidates face, and how activism cannot end at the ballot box. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. But I am here with Gabriel Piamonte, who is candidate for alderman in the Fifth Ward. And first of all, man, good to see your face. Good to see you too, Mario. What's the plan? For the future? It's a really good question. And, I, you know, I'm not sure. I think that without a doubt, we, you know, we did a lot of work. And not just that I did a lot of work with folks kind of volunteering, but also that people made a commitment to what we, what our conversation was about. And one, another kind of parallel that, I, that I'm proud to be able to say um, that our campaign had with Amara's is that we were just focused on the issues that really affected the whole ward, but increasingly South Shore over the course of the, the campaign, because there's a real economic crisis on the south side of the fifth ward, and we, we made that a, a really high priority. There are people who have kind of attached themselves to 
the solutions that we were advocating. And so whatever solution, whatever direction we go in, it'll be in the context of continuing to push forward for to uh, push really some specific proposals forward that uh, we we were uh, talking about throughout the the campaign. But it is it's tough. What what's happening right now is recovery. Yeah, you know that's yeah. it's and so I'm not really um, that that car accident analogy is perfect. It's what it feels like because I imagine if you're running a race. And then it comes to a stop like that. Sudden stop. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, even if you win the race, it, it literally, well, it doesn't come to a stop in that same sense because the race is over, but then the work starts. Right. But this this is, and for a person like you, that does the work. Right. There has to be this weird confluence. Like, I should be doing something today. I need to get up and. <laughs> you, you got it just right. You know me, Mario. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what it felt, it felt like. You, I woke up yesterday and. There was nothing to do, mm. and that mm. uh, that was disorienting because mm. I, oh, you know, there's always there's always something to do. So you so you recover and you reflect, and um, and and I have to thank you for this space because it's a difficult thing to emerge back. And I've not talked to any press. I haven't talked to anybody. We we got calls, of course, immediately on even before we knew definitively that Will was the going to be the challenger in the runoff. Folks were ready to ask. So there are some. Uh, articles out that were sort of based on hypotheticals while we were still watching returns come in. Well, what if mm-hmm. you don't win? And so people use those quotes. But w- the, at the end of uh, at end of Tuesday night, we I just basically shut off social media, shut off the phone, shut off everything, and we've been just reflecting to kind of take it in and, and try to make a, a sober judgment yeah. in terms of what has to happen next. I saw the letter you wrote. Oh, right. And that was one of the classiest things I've ever seen. Thank you. You didn't have to do that. Thank you. But you wrote this letter, and and in the letter you made it clear that me and Will work together. We've always done that. It's not like I don't have a... I don't have a beef with him. He doesn't have a beef with me. Our goal is to make the fifth better. Right. Um, Right. And... Uh, The same question around what what, uh, I asked Amara. I know that... I know that there are still votes that are, quote-unquote, out there. That's right. Yeah. Um... If it, if there, which would probably make you want to kick a hole through the wall. If there was a sudden change in the numbers, oh yes, you know, <laughs> I, I almost want to say don't ask, but we have to confront these things, <laughs> yeah. right? So we don't know. So yeah, it's it's not a hundred percent clear, but um, you know, it, there there are some outstanding um, ballots, you know, right, sort of write in mail in ballots. Um, I don't. You know, I don't think this is a reality, but I, I don't see it would have to be an astonishing. There would have to be a thousand write in ballots that nobody accounted <laughs> right. for, including my mom. You know, <laughs> and I have to explain to her why I was like, sorry, mom, I, I'm not taking the job. Right. You know, <laughs> sorry, lady. But, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it's not where I we, we you know, I feel I feel good about this. The thing is, um, from the beginning, so I should say, even before you know, before I announced, I spent three months trying to convince other people to run. Yeah. So I was calling, uh, you know, really high-profile people, especially in South Shore, in in Hyde Park, and they were saying, uh, "You're right. Someone needs to run against Leslie. You're crazy if you think anyone. You know, I'm going to do it. But why don't you? Why don't you think about this crazy idea?" <laughs> and so, you know, eventually, I ran. In a funny way, the campaign is like a completion <laughs> of that arc. Yeah, because I just yeah. kind of uh, tricked Will into being the person who, right. <laughs> who ended up running, jokingly. Of course, right. Will, you know, this was something he and I actually, after uh, his results in the 25th district, where you know he ran 
for that state rep race. We almost within a couple of weeks we were talking about him running for alderman. Mm. We talked about that. We were talking about mayor. Interestingly, I think when Rom, you know, when we knew Rom wasn't going to run, that would that's what definitively closed the door on a mayoral run for Will mm. because uh, legitimately, you know, he was. We were having conversations where he said, "Just think about what would it mean if Gary McCarthy, Rahm Emanuel, and I." Were in a oh, forum. Man. I mean, yeah. just think about what that yeah. conversation would have looked like. Yeah, and and he really was thinking in terms of the social justice context of holding these men accountable, which had never happened and really still hasn't happened um, in an important way. Uh, but that's not how things turned out. I know the the uh, first of all, I was counting on you and Amara to take me away from all this. <laughs> Give us just a little bit longer, I Mario. Was, We're working on I it. I was so looking forward to doing a cartwheel when I got to my job on Wednesday <laughs> going, guys, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I have to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> Rats. Stupid work. Good thing you didn't prematurely <laughs> make that. Oh, man, no. I've, I've done stupid stuff like that before, but I no. Um, um Jamie Trecker's here, too. What's up, man? Nothing much. How you doing? <sighs> Still getting over Tuesday. Yeah, it's a historic election with some some real shocks. Gabriel, you know, sorry that uh, you didn't get over the hump there. No, um, it's just fine. You know, I, I did have a question for you. Sure. A lot of people have been saying, you know, how disappointed they are that, you know, certain candidates didn't win or somebody didn't do well. I, I'd love to hear from your perspective what your take on this is, because obviously, you know, as, as you've mentioned, this was a fairly genial fight. You know what I mean? In your ward, you guys wanted to go uh, and change things in South Shore, obviously. But in terms of your competition, there wasn't that kind of viciousness and, and backstabbing that we've seen in other wards around this city. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of obviously the 14th, you know, and, and some others. <laughs> how, how do you react to coming so close yet yet not making it? Does it get you down or do you feel, as, as Amar was saying earlier, you know, got to dust myself off and kind of get back in there? So uh – uh I'm a little less tough than Amara. Um, <laughs> I don't. You do, got, do both my you best. Guys are pretty tough. Do my best, but uh, not a triathlete. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it hurts. I'm not gonna. You know, I'm not gonna pretend that it, it hasn't. I've literally gone through a couple of days um, of recovery. I would say. You know, it's a it's a devastating. You know, the moment when you realize because you're kind of putting yourself out there, and you're saying to a lot of people. Who you know over over for me over eighteen years I've built these relationships with and I'm saying hey what do you think and I'm also saying get on board with me we're going to do something so people risk with you but you're also kind of putting yourself in and Mario this I mean there's an analogy to the work that you do where you sort of say do you think I you know this is something we can do and then really in a sense the final decision no matter how you parse it is no. <laughs> like thanks but no thanks and so that you know that's something that you just have to process but i want to say um you know that that genial kind of thing and and it's absolutely true that the characterization that is made of our race took a tremendous amount of work so you know you really have to push against chicago culture really american culture but for will and i to have been friendly and amiable and interact the way we did at forums and and you know have the quotes in media it took huge amounts of effort including kind of managing our supporters who were not used to that and mm -hmm. we would we would come off of forums and the organizers would say what are you guys doing we need more conflict you know people are looking for the drama and it was it's exactly what you said our priority we we had a shared priority we see 
the challenges and we see the real danger to uh, vulnerable folks in our ward, um, depending on how certain things happen uh, going forward. And, and we just decided we're going to make that a priority. And, and I'm proud. That's a success for both of us, that we were able to get through to the end of our time together in this race. And, and no one can say that at any point there was a low blow, there was a cheap shot. And I really uh, appreciate that. And, you know, the, the margin between you guys is about 354 votes. Right, right. You know, I, I'm just looking at the results. Only only 12,000 votes were cast in your ward, which right. I, I don't know the size of your ward off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm going to guess that's around a 25% turnout about right. of registered voters. A little more. In your ground game, did you guys – did you do any second guessing the day after and say, you know – what if I'd done this or what if I'd done that? Because this is turning out to be an election that was incredibly decided at every level by mobilization in the ground game. Right. And I, I'm just, you know, looking at what happened to, to Bill Daly is, is a great example of that because Jerry Joyce, his game uh, in the West obviously hurt him very badly, whereas Lori Lightfoot's game in the North was extremely uh, beneficial to her. So I'm wondering if there was any lessons you had that you would pass on to people that might be listening that are, are considering also doing this? No question. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing you do when you see, so when I went to bed that night, it was 200 votes. So there were four precincts not reported. And um, when we, when, and so here's a funny thing that happened. Talk about this hurting. Uh, we have our kind of election night. There's, I've got a screen up with the results and everything. Everyone there is are people I love and care about, and I'm grateful they were there, and I'm not saying anything except relating something real, once it's pretty clear that, you know, we've got all the results we're going to have that night and you just lost, mm -hmm. the room empties so fast, yeah. you know, and no, everyone's just sort of like, okay, sorry, good luck, bye. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you, so without question, you think I could have that one day that I, you know, I did this thing instead of that thing, I didn't knock on those doors. There were days we weren't at early voter turnout because we had other things that we were handling and and you think like oh what if i had just steered a few people who were indecisive so yeah you kill yourself that way i ultimately that's part of the healing process that you say okay yeah you can always do everything better but one of the lessons i've learned in ways that i've become stronger through this campaign is that every day is full of mistakes mm. you are an entrepreneur you are a political entrepreneur throughout the entire process of campaigning meaning that you don't look at your you know your store and things go crazy and you say, okay, this store has all, all sorts of mistakes happening in it. I have to close the store. You say it's another day that there were mistakes. You know, I had a screwed up, uh, you know, strategy for avoiding shoplifting and now I've lost all my Doritos or whatever, <laughs> you know. But right. the the thing I'll say about um, the, the uh, that, that, you know, double kind of double guessing yourself the margin between Will and I is, with no question, would have easily been made up during the petition defense that I had to do and right. he didn't have to do. And that's something at some point we should talk mm. about today, some of the kind of built-in obstacles to regular citizens, you know, being, being out there. Jesus, Kyle, I always thought your what? homeless bum look was an affectation. What are you talking about, Jess? Well, you're pushing a full shopping cart of trash down the middle of Morgan Street in a snowstorm. No, 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 hold on a second. There's got to be some place you can go. Do 
libraries still exist? This is no shopping cart. This is my chariot. And with a little help, it'll carry me to race victory. I hope I don't understand what you meant by that. You haven't heard of the Bridgeport I did a Nimrod thingy? It's huge. The Iditarod? Oh, there is no way that you or that shopping cart are making it to a dog race in Alaska. Yeah, we got one right here in Bridgeport. Been running it every winter since the 30s. I am finding this difficult to believe. Oh, you find it difficult to believe. Well, now, let me tell you something. I gotta go hide stuff for half price at Unique on Monday right now, so I don't have time for your crazy today. Hold on a sec. There's a lot of history and probably some safety concerns, but the main point is the first prize is 500 simoleons. Wow, I cannot wait to support this proud local tradition. Where do we start? First, we gotta find some dogs. Once we got those, we can enter the race. Piece of cake. I gotta ask you, what the truck is this? Oh, it's the new dog yoga session over at the boathouse. Wait a sec. Dog yoga? Yoga. It's a culturally appropriated stretching thing that rich white people do. Ah, I see. Yes. Uh, you do not. The glass is all covered in steam. So this is dog exercise? Why don't they just give them a rope and let them uh, run around? I'm not going to bust the boathouse on their scam. There's tons of new transplants from the north side who love stretchy pants and take an Instagram stories of their dogs. There to be printing money up in here. Uh, yeah, it uh, also pretty, makes it uh, super easy for us to know. grab a bunch of dogs. Hmm. I see some huskies over there. That's a snow-type dog. You grab the big white ones. I'll grab these two little tan guys. No corgis, Kyle. They can't pull Jack. Let's go ahead and get this. Hurry up, Jess. I think we got made. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Two minutes, sir. Jess, come on. Quick, into the shopping cart. Come on. Much. Hardly a Cadillac here, Kyle. Yeah, I couldn't get one of them nice jewels stocked with the locks on them. Where the hell are we going? Halstead, Jess. We're going to Halstead. That's where the start of the race is at. Left, left. You have to pull left. Oh, snap. I see the yogurt people with this pitchfork. Mush, mush. Uh, what does that even mean, Jack? It means oh, hold on to the dang dogs. Good morning, race fans, and welcome to the 76th Bridgeport Iditarod, stretching from Cermak all the way to back of the yards. It's a beautiful day for a dog race. And we're almost set to start this. Wait, what's this? What's this? I see a late entrant. I think in what appears to be a shopping cart being chased by a mob in Lululemon. Well, it takes all types. And they're off. Swallow it, Kyle. We're almost gonna win this thing. The Limburger ain't sitting too so good. Limburger never sits good. It's basically on the package. And was this just over the line of what appears to be a new record time? It looks like an old man in a shopping cart with a young girl in a fur coat. Yes, two bums have won the rich boy. Hey, you take that back, you jag. I'm only bum adjacent. Yes, we won. We won 500 Somalians. We did. We won. Yeah, that's my dog. Someone arrest those guys. They stole my Fifi. I'm just going to go ahead and take this check. Yoink! Kyle, scatter, scatter, serpentine! Hold on, wait. Uh, okay, bye. Oh, oh, I've had enough. The dogs, the race. I don't even have any money for bubbles. I guess I'm going to go back to the cold pro basement and eat whatever the guys threw down the drain. Da, 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 dee, dee. Uh, let's see it's on the radio. And welcome back to news from the service interest. Today, 
Uh, we're going to talk to the 638th declared candidate in the race to become Chicago's next mayor. Harry Wobbles? Is that even a real name? It's Harry with an I. Uh, that's it. I know what I can do to make some coin. Kyle Seismankowski is going to be a new man. I'm going to run for the mayor of Chicago. To be continued. This week on The Trump Diaries, a devastating takedown of Fox News links that network directly to Trump. The House begins a sweeping inquiry into Trump and his family. New York State prosecutors look into the Trump Organization's insurance policies. ICE has been conducting surveillance on protests. And Trump's America First policies have been making the United States poorer. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 771, March 1st. Trump ordered Chief of Staff John Kelly to grant his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, a top-secret security clearance last year over objections from intelligence officials and the White House's top lawyer. Kushner was viewed as unqualified to have a clearance and, moreover, someone who could be exploited by foreign agents. Trump had previously lied and claimed he had no role in Kushner receiving that clearance. The House Oversight Committee has subpoenaed Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Trump Organization head Alan Weisselberg. Michael Cohen told Congress that all three were involved in hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and that Donald Trump Jr. and Weisselberg signed one of the $35,000 checks that reimbursed him for that payment. Cohen also said he briefed Trump Jr. and Ivanka about Trump Tower Moscow 10 times. Donald Trump Jr. had previously testified to the Senate in 2017. He was only, quote, peripherally aware of that project. That appears to have been perjury. Cohen and Felix Sater are now testifying before the House Intelligence Committee on March 14th about that project. The foreign link company that is fighting Robert Mueller to avoid handing over records has racked up some two and a quarter million dollars in fines. Lawyers for the mystery firm have argued that because the company is entirely owned by a foreign government, it should not be subject to subpoena in the United States criminal investigation. American judges have rejected that claim. North Korea disputed Trump's claim that Kim Jong-un demanded that the United States lift all sanctions in exchange for denuclearization. And an anonymous senior U.S. official acknowledged that Kim only wanted the U.N. Security Council to lift sanctions opposed since March 2016. Korea has been under various sanctions for decades. Roger Stone said he was framed by Robert Mueller in an Instagram post. That appears to violate the gag order barring him from criticizing prosecutors and the judge in the criminal case against him. In addition, Judge Amy Berman Jackson summoned Stone's lawyers to explain why they didn't tell her about the planned publication of a book by Stone. That book called, quote, The Myth of Russian Collusion, the inside story of how Trump really won, came out today. Mueller referred that Instagram post to the judge. Day 772, March 2nd. The Washington Post reported that in 2011, days after Trump publicly challenged then-President Barack Obama to show his records to prove he hadn't been a terrible student, wealthy alumni accosted the superintendent of the New York Military Academy and told him to bury Trump's academic records. Michael Cohen had testified to Congress last week that he was also ordered to, quote, threaten Trump's high school, his colleges, and the College Board never to release his grades or SAT scores. Trump has falsely claimed he was at the top of his class at the Academy and at Wharton Business. And Trump continued to attack Cohen, this time claiming the media was suppressing an apparently non-existent manuscript for a book written by Cohen that would have contradicted his former fixer's testimony. Trump also tried to claim the Cohen hearings torpedoed his Korea summit. Quote, for the Democrats to interview in open hearings a convicted liar and fraudster at the same time as the very important nuclear summit with North Korea is perhaps a new low in American politics and may have contributed to the walk. 
never done when a president is overseas. Shame. It's worth noting that Trump, in fact, was the person who walked away from the negotiating table. Day 773, March 3rd. Rand Paul became the fourth Republican to announce he would vote for a resolution overturning Trump's attempt to circumvent Congress and declare a national emergency at the border to build a wall. Quote, we may want more money for border security, but Congress didn't authorize it, said Paul. Trump has promised to veto the resolution. It would be the first veto of his presidency. Neither the House nor the Senate appear to have the votes needed to override a presidential veto. And during a rambling two-hour speech in front of conservative activists, Trump called investigations into him bull, repeatedly complained about the coverage of his crowd sizes, attacked Democrats in Congress as sick, mocked the Green New Deal promoted by liberals to address climate change, and then attacked his former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. He wound up by claiming he was announcing an executive order to mandate protection of free speech on college campuses. Day 774, March 4th. Democrats began a sweeping inquiry into corruption by the Trump White House with a flurry of document demands. Their inquiry scrutinizes possible obstruction of justice, corruption, and abuse of power by Trump and the members of his administration. Democrats also demanded 10 years of Trump's tax returns. The House sent requests for documents and subpoenaed some 81 entities and people linked with Trump. Those included the Trump Foundation, the Presidential Inaugural Committee, the White House, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Jared Kushner, Hope Hicks, Steve Bannon, Sean Spicer, Ivanka Trump, and the National Rifle Association, among many others. The House Judiciary Committee is responsible for impeachment proceedings. Meanwhile, Adam Schiff alleged there is direct evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Schiff cited emails from the Russians through an intermediary offering dirt on Clinton as part of what is described, quote, in writing as the Russian government effort to help elect Trump. Schiff is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee and said he has, quote, much more evidence than has been made public. He added, quote, there is an acceptance of that offer from Russia in writing from the president's son, Don Jr., Mark Warner, the ranking Democrat in the Senate Intelligence Committee, added, quote, they had uncovered enormous amounts of evidence that say Trump colluded with Russia. Quote, there is no one that could factually say there's not plenty of evidence of collaboration or communications between the Trump Organization and Russia. A coalition of 21 states led by California filed suit to block Trump's changes to the Title X family planning program. That move, which would shift tens of millions of dollars from any doctor or clinic that provides abortion referrals toward clinics run by the religious right, would effectively decimate Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is frequently the only health care provider for low-income women in the United States. Day 775, March 5th. Trump responded by denying requests for documents about generic Kushner's security clearance. Trump also said the White House will refuse to comply with requests for documents from the House Judiciary Committee. Trump then accused House Democratic leaders of, quote, going stone-cold crazy by opening an oversight investigation. Trump claimed the House was, quote, harassing 81 innocent people with a big, fat fishing expedition. Trump called it, in all caps, presidential harassment. Meanwhile, New York State regulators subpoenaed the Trump Organization's insurance broker. Michael Cohen had testified the Trump Organization inflated the value of its assets to insurance companies. New York State is now seeking copies of the COIs from Aon as well as documents pertaining to the assets covered. A devastating portrayal of the symbiotic relationship between Fox News and the Trump White House was published in The New Yorker. In the deep dive, Jane Meyer notes that Fox News has become the closest thing to official state television and notes that Rupert Murdoch openly campaigned for Trump to become president. In one of the most damaging revelations, Meyer reported that Trump ordered Gary Cohn to pressure the Justice Department to block AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner. Trump, angry over CNN's coverage of him, 
which CNN is owned by Time Warner, told John Kelly, then his chief of staff, quote, I've been telling Cohen to get this lawsuit filed and nothing's happened. I've mentioned it 50 times. Nothing's happened. I want to make sure it's filed. I want to make sure this deal is blocked. If this report is confirmed, it would be fodder for impeachment. My reported that Fox News also had uncovered evidence, including the canceled checks from Cohen's cover-up of hush money payments months before the election. The reporter, Diana Falzoni, was told by her boss that it was, quote, good reporting, kiddo, but Rupert Murdoch wants Trump to win, and spiked the story. Falzoni later filed a wrongful termination suit against Fox News after she was subsequently demoted. And Roger Ailes apparently informed the Trump campaign in advance about questions Megyn Kelly would ask during the first Republican presidential debate in 2015. That was critical because just before that debate, the Access Hollywood tape of Trump making lewd remarks to Billy Bush had aired on national television. New information emerged that, as he did for his son-in-law, Trump ordered the White House to grant daughter Ivanka Trump a top-secret clearance over strenuous objections. Day 776, March 6th. ICE has been monitoring a series of left-leaning and so-called anti-Trump protests in New York City. The agency, which does not have a remit to surveil domestically, tracked protests that promoted immigrants' rights and opposed Trump's deportation policies. It also apparently led surveillance against a protest organized by a sitting member of Congress. Korea has started a rapid rebuilding of its long-range ballistic missile site at Sohei. That site is North Korea's only operational space launch facility and uses similar technology to launch ICBMs. The renewed activity was observed just two days after the summit in Hanoi collapsed. Cohen's attorney apparently approached Trump's attorneys about a pardon after the FBI raided his office in April. Trump's attorneys dismissed the idea, but apparently Rudy Giuliani dangled a pardon offer for the future. There is no indication that Cohen personally asked for a pardon or was aware of the discussion. White House logs show that Trump signed 11 checks to Cohen while in office. The checks were repayment for hush money given to two women. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has resigned. Gottlieb, who was a pro-regulation Trump appointee, making him highly unusual, had pushed for regulation on e-cigarettes. Also, Matthew Whitaker, who was named as acting attorney general before William Barr was confirmed, resigned over the weekend. And despite more than two years of Trump's so-called America First policies, the United States last year posted an $891 billion merchandise trade deficit. That is the largest in the U.S.'s 243-year history. The trade gap with China also hit a record $419 billion. Trump's pattern of lying continues to accelerate. Trump averaged nearly six false or misleading claims per day during his first year in office and 16 and a half per day in his second year. This year, he's averaging nearly 22 lies per day. 65% of Americans believe that Trump committed crimes before he became president. Over half of America says they believe Michael Cohen more than they do Donald Trump. Yet 41% of Americans say they would vote for Trump in 2020. These are the Trump Diaries. Bad at Sports spoke with painter Jen Deerdorf, currently exhibiting in Wisconsin. Deerdorf, who makes large-scale abstractions that wink at classic genre paintings, discusses her technique, her interests, and the magic of flowers. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. I am here today with Jen Deerdorf, a Brooklyn-based painter, who is in town in part for a show that is currently up at Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin, called Break Loose, a two-person painting show with Kevin Stewart, who we'll be talking to in the next couple weeks. Uh, welcome, Jen. How are you doing today? Hi, Ryan. Oh. One more time. Hello. There we Hi. go. <laughs> How are you doing this morning? I'm good. Yeah. Good. 
I'm ready. You, re- you ready to talk about SMART? Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about your practice and what you do. Well, uh, yeah, I live in Brooklyn. Um, I am uh, a painter. Um, I've been uh, working uh, in painting for about the last uh, 10 years or so. I studied uh, sculpture. Um, and now I'm kind of doing some painting, mixed media painting, and installation, and installation work. And what is the content of said paintings? Ooh, well, a lot of it um, has to do with identity and gender. Um, the sort of motif I've been working with for the last four years are uh, still life cut flower paintings. Um, and I kind of use that as a jumping off point to uh, talk about um, uh Gender as an imposed uh, construct, and uh, oh, that's good. Yeah. Can you hear can, yourself more now? I can hear now? myself better. All right, yeah. we're working okay. on it. Yeah. <laughs> the magic of radio. I know, I'm, yeah. Okay. I'm syncing up my voice and my <laughs> mouth moving. Um, yeah. So I guess I uh, I've been using this motif as a way to sort of uh, think about my own identity as a woman um, and gender as this idea that is fluid and. Um, and really, a lot of the work that I make is about painting, and I sort of use this motif of cut flowers, um, flower still life, as a, as a thing to hang painting on so that I'm really kind of playing with paint and materials. Um, but I'm also, through that process, thinking about these larger ideas that are confusing and changing and um, and political and, and kind of, you know, there's no real answer or any way to... Uh, to know about these things, but it's something that I just like to process in my mind and think about and uh, and confront through painting. So it sounds like the paintings are less trying to find an answer or solution for these things and more about uh, just letting them be questions on the wall. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, uh, I feel like it's always something I've dealt with, uh, gender or um, the identity of gender. And um, being a woman, it's always been kind of at the front of uh, how people interact with me and how I interact with the world. And so in some ways, you know, my the composition of my work is just, it's sort of an iconic uh, image. So there's just... It's also front and center. Front and center. And that's kind of how I start to th- think of those, um, you know, my identity as a woman is almost uh, the first thing people th- see about me. And... Um, so in some ways, I think putting those flowers in a vase and this idea of something, it's just right there. It's in the center. It's the first thing you confront. And then after that, the kind of um, the all the other stuff, the painting and the, um, you know, the pushing against those kind of boundaries of, of stereotypes and whatever, um, that's kind of secondary. Okay. Yeah. It sounds so. You started as a sculptor in in school, and then mm-hmm. you moved to painting. You said about ten years ago, and then about four years ago, the cut flowers became the main motif. So you've kind of tra- made some transitions through your career, but you're talking about identity and how uh, your your womanness uh, your feels like it's the upfront thing that kind of uh, you deal with. You're saying that mm-hmm. currently. I'm wondering. Like, did your awareness of that come out at the same time as you started to make the cut flower paintings? Or 
was that something that was kind of ever present and you just slowly got to a place where your practice and these concepts kind of lined up or you know what was the what was the correlation between these two things at the beginning and how did they get to this place now yeah i think that i probably i think that internally it's definitely something that's always been there um painting just allowed me to kind of talk about it or think about it in a new way or to bring it into the conversation now so it has always been there it's always been something that i've thought about um and and even though i I identify as a woman um but i also i'm very interested in like um i think this is so exciting like the time that we're in that we're having these conversations about uh, gender non-conforming and um non-binary um and people you know taking on these sort of different identities that they want to have they want that's what they want to present or that's how they want people to see them and even though I identify as a woman, I'm very interested in, you know, I don't, I also don't want that to be the first thing or the most thing. Um, you know, I've always kind of felt probably more uh, non-binary than anything else. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but I present as a woman. So that's also why I identify as a woman, I suppose. But um but yeah, I think that uh, painting has just allowed me to sort of bring it into the focus of my of this conversation. So I, I think about it a lot because of that. But also, um, I don't know, painting is great because I feel like it's it's not really uh, presenting any sort of answers about things, but it, it just gives me the space to think about something um, in kind of an abstract way. And uh, I get to just mess around in that space for a while and and I think it does give me clarity in a lot of ways or um you know move the conversation forward but it's not it's not about having some kind of answer to it at the end or anything like that it's very open-ended it's very uh uh it's just kind of this visual playground in some way for your eye and your mind to kind of move through the space and conceptually, I think it's just about pushing on these boundaries of, uh, you know, it, literally when you're looking at one of my paintings, um, you can identify for the most part that there's flowers and a vase shape and there might be light or water or these ele- other elements coming in. But um, uh, but it's very abstracted. Um, I don't paint from life. I'm not observing flowers or I I love flowers. Um, I love plants, uh, but I but it's not something that I'm painting from observation. Or it's really about this mind space, this conceptual space, and about the materials and being present and and doing this thing in front of me. Angel Bat Dalwit and Asher Games came by Studio A to celebrate the release of their new LP, The Oracle. This selection aired live on QC with King Hippo.
I don't know about you, but I have officially recaught blockchain fever. You you've been off the wagon for a while. That's the thing about blockchain, right? You you it, it, it's so easy to just get absorbed completely into blockchain. How do you have time for this show? No, I I don't honestly know, and you know it took a lot of effort just to pull myself away from that to come here and do this program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell. Yeah, no, and I, I go through these phases, right, where right. I'm just really, really into blockchain for months at a time, and I catch myself. I'm like, all right, I need to take a step back. I need to mm-hmm. I need to reevaluate. I need yeah. to think about things, and then. Months pass and I get back into it because there's all these updates. Sure, these all this, um, this three point five, four point five. There's all this interesting stuff that happens, you know, with blockchain um, constantly, and the technology just continues to mm-hmm. increase and increase and increase. So I get back into it, you know, and I'm having a good time. I'm I'm really enjoying myself and learning a lot about things. And then a creeper. Just comes up and blows up. That'll do it. And that and it, and then I it restarts my blockchain all of your entirely. hard work. Yeah, it's all. like those months don't exist. You, it, you can't get them back. No, you can't because you know with blockchain, I spent all this time mining for diamonds, mm-hmm. mining for redstone. Yeah, um, really getting myself engaged. Sure. with blockchain, becoming one with the blockchain, and then and then I, it gets all sent back. And then, you know, my bed gets blown up, so sure. I get sent back to the original. Anyway. All of those creative juices down the drain. I, I'm i not there yet. I'm not there yet, but I know it's coming, but it's fun. You know, it's a fun thing to do sometimes. Sure. Just watch out for those creepers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, make sure you can export those those files. Those files. Well, and th- but that's a problem. Every time the blockchain updates itself, um, all of those old files are totally useless because then you're not getting the latest blockchain right. updates. It's – um. That that thing where they make things so that you have to buy new things. Um, uh, planned 
ovals. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.